Hello and bienvenido San Antonio. Welcome to the Alamo Hour, discussing the people, places, and passion that make our city. My name is Justin Hill, a local attorney, a proud San Antonioan, and keeper of chickens and bees. On the Alamo Hour, you'll get to hear from the people that make San Antonio great and unique and the best kept secret in Texas. We're glad that you're here. All right, welcome to the Alamo Hour. Today's guest is Councilman Mario Bravo. Mario is District 1 Council Person for the City of San Antonio, recently elected. Uh, District 1 is is basically everything you see on a map in the middle of San Antonio, sort of from Southtown all the way up to about 410, a little bit on other sides, but then between 410, or between 281 and I-10. Uh, he ran on the issues of public safety, healthy community, and economic redevelopment. He unseated an entrenched incumbent who... If he had won, would maybe have been the longest-serving council person in San Antonio history. Is that right? I'm not sure, but yeah. Something along probably, those lines. It would have been a very long run. I think that's probably right because yep. we had just gone from four-year, recently gone from four uh, four years to eight years for term limits. Oh, uh, okay. And yeah, yeah. He would have been at about eight and a half years. Yeah, he was – there are two four-year terms now for y'all, right? Four two-year terms now. Oh, yeah, four <laughs> Because two four-year terms would make a whole lot more sense. I remember thinking how strange it was the way we did it. Uh, Mario has been involved in activism in San Antonio for a long time. Um, we'll talk to him about that. We asked him to come on to talk to us sort of about his you know, most recent election, uh, challenges for the city, and now is a very challenging time. So this is very prescient, I think, and a little bit about who he is. Uh, I got to know Mario when he decided to run for this District 1 seat. I reached out to him and said, you know, I, I think it's time for a change. I'd like to get to know you. Uh, Mario is very passionate about our city and his district. And before this, we were talking that, you know, when you're passionate about something, it doesn't feel like work and he's really enjoying it. But Mario, I sort of start all these with a little bit of getting to know some sort of strange questions. Uh, what are your favorite places to eat and drink right now in town? And let's, let's do District 1. District 1, where's your favorite place to sort of have a bite and have a drink right now? I, there's quite a few, but Liberty <laughs> Bar is one for sure. I'm a big fan of Curry Boys. Um, okay. On North St. Mary's yeah. trip. Um, you know, I, I like to get the Machicado con Nuevo tacos from Garcia's. Okay. Yeah. I just had Curry Boys. Curry Boys barbecue, right? Right. It's yeah. barbecue, but it's like barbecue yeah. chicken and brisket, but with curry, and it's yeah. amazing. No, it's fantastic. It's, it was all very spicy, though. Just it just heed the warning. Uh, I haven't been to, to Liberty Bar in a little while, but I used to be known to uh, go there on occasion. Uh, favorite hidden gems in District 1 of San Antonio? Maybe places people didn't know or haven't been within your district. Hidden gems. You have a lot of stuff in your district, so this should be an easy one. Yeah. Well, I'm just trying to think of what what's <laughs> hidden. Um you know, I guess not everybody knows about Sancho's and how great their micheladas and their, okay. their Bloody Marys are. I was, you know, I was going to go with like uh, the Japanese tea garden, but I mean, we'll stick to the drinking thing. I'm okay with that. You know, Sancho's is good and it's very fairly priced, which I also appreciate. Absolutely. And District 1 has some places that are not fairly priced. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what was the surprise hardest part of running a campaign? And this wasn't your first, so, I mean, you have some experience. It wasn't my first. Yeah, you know, uh, it, it was a little bit surprising to see um, a lot of, quote-unquote, uh, people from the left, progressives, yeah. that piled on against me in the runoff. That was, that was a little bit surprising. And why do you think that is? 
because I think I have strong pro- uh, progressive credentials and a record of working in the community. And so that, that was surprising to me. You think they were just so aligned with Trevino at that point they didn't care? You know, I think that um, they, they bought into Trevino's rhetoric over his boat record. Okay. I think that's – that, yeah. That's my best guess. Yeah. I don't honestly know. Uh, I mean, he, he he spent a long time, and I'm sure he had some successes. Um, I, I had a personal story, and, you know, politics are also – I mean, politics are local, right? Like, you do – you need your city councilman one time, and if they don't help you out, you think that they're not very responsive. And, and that was my experience. So I can't talk to his voting record. I could just talk to my one anecdotal uh, moment. Uh, do you have any odd hobbies? Um say odd hobbies i i like to sail i think that's an odd hobby for it, san antonio yeah a little bit a not little a lot bit, of s- people know, to sail around uh, here my neighbor uh, when i was growing up here in san antonio my neighbor's dad um, one of my bro- brother's little brother's best friends his dad built a 60 foot sailboat in his backyard oh. and it was legendary okay and so i kind of thought about that a lot and then i taught at a leadership program for for middle school kids in dc once and we would take them every every week we'd get a new group of kids and then we would all take them to go um see the the documentary about sir ernest shackleton and uh, his whole adventure in sailing and so it was just kind of a dream and uh when i finished grad school i had no money no job and a friend of mine presented an opportunity to, to get a sailboat and i was like you know i can't pay you because i you know i i uh have no money and yeah. no job and then i got a job and they they where we worked out an arrangement for payments and uh i'd never been on a sailboat before and i started learning to sail and i've been learning the hard way okay where have you sailed lake travis okay uh, there's actually a lot of sailboats out there there are uh, have you ever been on a razor not the uh, scooter yes yeah that was the funniest well, is it a razor event. or a laser Ooh, i laser. don't really know laser I think, yeah the little teeny ones yes that are, it was the funniest are, olympic event i saw this year the very reactive slippery little boats there are yeah, lots everybody of was everywhere nobody was like there two yeah. people were on course everybody else was like lost yeah. yeah my boat's very different from that but they're both fun in different ways i wanted it set to benny hill music i thought that would have been really uh comical just the you know the one where they like chase everybody <laughs> I could around see that. yeah i could see that uh did the 60 foot boat built in somebody's backyard was it seaworthy he sails it all over the world. <laughs> the guy's retired, and he sails it all over the world. And built his own yeah. sailboat. Yeah, mine is not seaworthy like okay. that. Mine is an old, my boat's older than me. Um, you know, you can buy old boats cheap, and then you spend a lot of time and money keeping them up. So Hardburger has like a, a really impressive sailing history too, I think. I've heard. I've yeah. heard. I'd love to go sailing with him. I, I competed. Bet I, could, I bet I could learn a lot from him. So there's a videographer who does court reporting here named Terry Lindemann. He actually, you can't see it, but he gave me a Big Bend photo he took as an office warming gift. He was hired by uh, one of the Maloney's and Hardberger at different times to be part of their competition sailing teams. So he didn't have his own boat, but he's just done it enough that he got he got sucked up to do that. Um they could hire me to wash their boat probably. I don't think they would hire me to Yeah, I mean, I think they go out and like race in like the Pacific and like yeah. real big races. Uh, favorite fiesta event. Favorite fiesta event. You know, I I like just going out um, among the people and just you know wandering and checking out the the different foods that you can get. And, you know, being able to get the tripas tacos. There's mm. not a lot of times and not a lot, lot of good places. Like if somebody knows a good place to get tripas tacos, I would love to hear about it. Uh, so it sounds like you like Niosa is what it sounds like. Yeah, that sounds like uh, <laughs> lots of people and lots of food. Um, 
you uh, you said that one of the things you did after graduating high school uh, was work on an Alaskan fishing boat, I think, if I heard that correctly, right? Yeah. Uh, scariest moment. Scariest moment on Because it's one of the deadliest jobs in America. Yeah. I mean, our boat was, you know, a lot of those boats, all, all the terrible accidents that you hear yeah. um, are a lot of times they're, they're crabbing boats where somebody takes a boat that's not that's too small huh. for the kind of weather and the kind of sea conditions you're going to experience okay. and too small of a crew and they work too long of hours and then big accidents happen or you run into some you know you have the boat overloaded with 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 seafood and weight and then you hit a big storm um, hmm. our boat was 240 feet long it was that six, seems big it was six stories tall <laughs> oh, you know geez. double steel holes Every door sealed down, like on a submarine with the the wheel. Um, so we felt like it was what the Titanic wanted to be. Okay. Uh, however, when we hit rough weather coming back, I started to realize, you know what? If not, if Mother Nature's going to take you out, Mother Nature's going to take you. Sure. Out. And like in the North Sea, the waves are shorter there, right? They're higher and shorter. There's something, you know. I'm sure the physics teacher could tell me this again, but up there, as you get closer, the wave the waves get tighter. It was. Yeah, I I, Unlike I, I did not know that, yeah. but I experienced that. Okay. Like you know, at one moment you're on the back of the boat and it's like being on top of a mountain and you can see forever. Oh, and the next thing you know, it looks like there's a mountain descending on you. <laughs> Gee, what were y'all fishing for? Uh, we were fishing for pollock. Okay. And I was out there. It's a basic white fish. Um, you know, like uh, the fish fillet sandwiches mm-hmm. from. Long John Silver's or McDonald's or fish sticks. A lot okay. of the fish sticks you know are Pollock. It's like the, uh, I think it's the certified, like, um, environmentally friendly alternative to cod is how it was described to me at a restaurant one time. Possibly. Possibly. I well, what, what struck me when I was out there is that I, I didn't realize the extent to which we were going to be uh, overfishing uh, when I got the job. <laughs> Right, and then I get out there, and then everybody. What struck me is everybody in the industry was talking about the industry as though they weren't a part of it, huh. and all the things that were wrong, and all the things people needed to do, and, and we were definitely. I mean, we went to Russia for our our. It was like well, you sign a contract for a certain number of fishing trips, and they don't tell you when you sign up, but they make you sign a contract for for more fishing trips than you can possibly fit in a U.S. fishing season. <laughs> then you find out, oh, I'm going to Russia. Now. Is that right? Yeah. So we go to Russia, and there were no fish in Russia. We were catching baby fish, and I thought, why are we doing this? If we catch all the baby fish this year, first of all, they're not. You can't do anything. And with you were them. keeping them. Yeah, and then then we're not going to have big fish next year, and that's huh. all there was. How many uh how many how many days were you at sea? <clears throat> I think maybe forty days. Long enough like to know, like, eh. yeah. I mean, it it was worth the adventure, not the money. Okay, I mean, forty days. You were like Noah, right? Wasn't he forty? <laughs> I think right, forty days, sure. forty nights. Um, my mom worked on uh, a can and a, and a cannery on Kodiak Island. Okay, yeah. So she always tells the stories about how the fish were frozen when they were brought, and one of her jobs was. I don't know either. Everybody had a job. One cut the head off, one did the, this thing. And she said you would leave and your fingers would be frozen just solid because that's all you'd been doing. Oh, my knuckles got really swollen because because you you'd take a you get a it was a 16-hour shift. And every 4 hours you get a 15-minute break. And so you you know, your hand your hand you you like I guess your hands would get cold. You'd take a break and then you'd come back and your hands weren't warmed up again and all of a sudden everything's frozen and you just 
Was it with nets? Is that how you catch pollock? Yeah, so we were ca- we were dragging huge nets. We could bring in up to 75 tons per net. And we had machinery that would do everything that people with working with your mother did yeah. by hand. Yeah. So, you know, you would put them in these slots on a uh, on a conveyor belt. And so they were cleaned on the boat. We did it all on oh, the boat. Wow. It was a factory factory trawler, factory dragger. So we dragged nets and processed the fish. So there were machines that would saw cut the heads off, slice the belly open, whisk out the guts, fillet them, descale them. Oh, and then you just take these clean fillets and, and you're layering them into a, a basket. That, and once you get 17 pounds, it's on a scale. Once you get to 17 pounds, they go into a little box and they get flash frozen. You can freeze, I think, a ton of fish or two tons of fish in 15 minutes. <laughs> and, and Did then, you eat a lot of pollock while you were out there? No, we ate really well on that. Yeah, really, really. I guess you well. catch other things that aren't part of the season. No, you're not allowed to. You just throw them back. Yeah, because you don't want to get busted. What if they're dead? Yeah. Still throw them back. You got to get rid of it all. Yeah, because you can't be accidentally targeting the wrong fish. I guess, and you don't want to get fined or lose your boat. So I was in Mexico uh, fishing uh, marlin, and long story short, it's terrible. But we finally catch one marlin, uh, and they said, "Well, you can't keep it. It's illegal to keep it if it's a viable fish." And then a guy hits it in the head with a hammer and says, well, it's not viable anymore. And I thought, what in the hell? So I didn't know if y'all had some No, we didn't have anything like that. Like that. They, were, yeah. they, were try, they would try if they, you know, accidentally pulled on a shark or something like that. They'd try a big one. Yeah. They'd try and get it off the boat quickly so that it could live okay. if they could. Yeah. Did you catch things like that? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, we caught the wrong things now yeah. and then, you know. I mean, it was... Uh, it was one of the more modern fishing boats, and so we had radar that could tell you what, or sonar that yeah. could tell you what kind of fish were down there, and so we were Jeez. targeting our spools, uh, uh, you know, um, schools of fish, but also we would track the other boats, so we could, we knew mm. which currents your boat fished on which day, so that we wouldn't go and follow you in those currents as, as well. Well, I mean, there's so much money to go out, you better yeah. make it pretty sophisticated, I would right. assume. It was a $40 million boat. How many people were on the crew? Um, anywhere from like maybe a hundred to 120 at a time. So full bunk houses and everything. And you and your brother. Yeah. So what was the longest amount of time you were out at one time? Maybe three weeks at a time. No, two, two, two to three weeks. That's a while. Yeah. And y'all went out of, uh, Dutch Harbor. Okay. Which is where all the boats on the show go out of, right? All right. I could talk to you about fishing because it's real interesting. Uh, okay. Easy question. Tell us about district one. What is it? Who are the people who lives there? Uh, you know, District 1 is unique because District 1 borders every single other city council district. Huh. It's the only one that does okay. that, right? We're we're like the middle of the pie. Yeah. Um, it's like I said, if there were people, you typically you cut up a pie into to wedges, but if there was a centerpiece, that's District 1. Okay. Um, so it's unique in that way. It's unique in that it has so much of downtown. Um, and so that makes it a little bit different. And then we, you've got some competing interests, right, with development. Um there's downtown development or just um, density development versus people wanting to preserve the character of their neighborhoods, not wanting more traffic in their neighborhoods. Yeah. Um, just, um, you know, wanting to keep things the way they're, they are. And I mean, so it's everything downtown that the normal person thinks is downtown, right? Um, I mean, it's sort of I-10 the all the way to part, 281. Yeah. It's yeah. The mo- for the most part, it's everything yeah. that people consider downtown. And it's very uh, economically sort of st- 
almost every economic class is contained within your district, that right? That is true as well. I mean, you have some very nice neighborhoods. You've got some of the really nice condos all the way to some of the older neighborhoods that have been known for having, you know, economic, uh, well, downtrodden economically areas and some of the areas that have been forgotten and, and taken right. advantage of probably. Absolutely. And I like to tell people, you know, people in low-income neighborhoods, they pay taxes too. Yeah. You know. And they vote. Yeah. Uh, and if and, and if they vote more, we get people that pay attention to them more, which is which is a good thing. Uh, you're kind of in an interesting time, I think, for San Antonio as well, because Mayor Castro was such a, you know, it was the decade of downtown or whatever he said. You know, those chickens are coming home to roost, and you're getting this big downtown development now, which I think is wonderful for our city. Um, you know, I rode my bike through it today, and the t- the the days of riding through and seeing a bunch of boarded up windows. Those are kind of over, so you're in a really exciting time for downtown. We'll talk about the rest of your district, but what are some of your personal goals for for what you hope happens with our downtown district? Uh, I want to, our downtown to be a place where people go to live, you know. So I want it to be um, a more walkable downtown. I want it to be a downtown that has a lot of unique uh, culture, nightlife, um, unique restaurants, and uh, my understanding is if you do that. If you create an experience that is where people would, locals would want to live and where there's unique local culture, that that actually also um, increases high-end tourism. Okay. And, and I guess that was where I was going to go with it. It's a, it is kind of a, I would guess, other cities have experienced this. I would assume it's a balancing act, but y'all, y'all to the best of your understanding, is if you increase the ability to live there, it also increases the... Uh, environment for our tourism industry, which is what our downtown has been known for for so long. Right, right. And I believe that I'm the first person um, in District 1 in recent times anyway to hire a staff member whose sole job is is focused on the downtown. So I have a senior director of downtown. I don't, I'm sure you don't know off the top of your head, but we all know the economic impact of our conventions and what happens downtown is, is huge for the city. Uh, take away the, the livability and the walkability portion and bringing residents back downtown. Uh, any goals for sort of our, our convention crowd and our visitors? Because that props up a lot of our economy downtown as it stands right now. It does. I think we need to, um, you know, protect a lot of the jobs that we have, but also diversify our economy as well so that we're not overly reliant on them. You know, I want to do all I can to promote tourism and, and support the the conventions and keep them going here. But uh, it's been tough because of the pandemic, yeah. you know, and when are we going to be completely out of it? I don't know. Um, what's, what's the new normal? I don't know yet, but um, we need to be, we need to continue to work on that, but also be, be able to pivot as well for whatever the new normal is. Yeah. I mean, that, and those workers, you know, have just taken such a big hit. I mean, those are some of the people that were laid off who did not have nest eggs to rely upon to begin with and not a lot of transferable skills. And, you know, Ron was on here talking about the ready to work program and all that. And and he focused a lot about those, those people that have worked in those industries that were so hard hit by the pandemic. Um, Downtown is also the home of what is going to be a big cybersecurity hub uh, with UTSA's new development. Is that outside of your district? Um. I, you know, some of it may be in the district. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know exactly where it is. They're expanding. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But we have, what's our, what's our new think tank kind of a incubator, tech incubator that we have downtown right across from the, the, the embassy. I'm not sure. 
you know, it's like a work think, uh, tech companies can go in there. They can get advisement on finances, on business planning, on legal, uh, Graham Weston's big behind it, but Are we have talking about geekdom. Yes. Or? Okay. Yeah. So we have sort of one of the things San Antonio's always wanted more of is higher paying jobs, tech jobs, and kind of be, you know, part of the new economy as it moves forward. The cybersecurity thing, what's already happening with geekdom is there, is there movement from other tech companies to start coming in and capitalizing on this? Or is that what the city's starting to look to do is to try to how to incentivize those people to come be part of our urban core? I don't know the answer to that, but if that's something I can help on, I would love to do it. Yeah. Um, is, is Graham Weston still part of the geekdom stuff? Uh, I believe so. Yeah. Um, the, it, does your district end at I-10 right there where UTSA is? Yes. Okay. Um, another thing that's sort of going on downtown is the San Pedro Creek, mm-hmm. that huge development. Uh, I just recently went for the first time. I'd never really been down there. Uh, any updates on what's going on with that or the sort of development along the San Pedro Creek? Um, have you heard of the link? No. So the link is going to be a project that's going to be connecting that to the Riverwalk area. And mm. my understanding is that uh, Commissioner's Court just approved $41 million to go towards that project downtown. So and what is the link going to be? Link, it's going to be um, a, a connection between San Pedro Creek and, and Riverwalk areas downtown. And... Um, like a train or like a walkway or yeah, river? Yeah, yeah, walking, bike paths, okay. beautification. Because yeah. uh, you go down there still and there's all those, there's a lot of older apartments and older buildings. And I just assume there's going to be some big development move through all of that because the city and the county put, I don't even know, was it the county that puts, a, there was like a billion dollars into that San Pedro yeah, the Creek. The did a lot. I don't know what the city did. Yeah. And then it kind of ends right at the Five Points area, which is ripe for development as well, which is part of your district. Um, what are some of the, what are some of the sort of eye opening moments of being a city council person? I think I speak for anybody that listens that we know maybe who our city council person is. We're not hundred percent sure what all they do. Um, we know they're who we call if something's going on, but what really is most of your sort of day to day or week to week activity? Well, I'm, I've only been in maybe two and a half months and a lot of it has been leading up to how are we going to spend a $3.1 billion budget? Um, and so looking at how we can allot whatever we, we have, whatever we have the ability to adjust in there. Um, and so, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm working on some budget amendments right now. Um, one thing that has really stood out to me is the opportunity to do more on homelessness. You know, a lot of people, um, might look at people who are living on the streets and say, you know, why don't they get a job? And, and, you know, why should we spend my tax dollars on those people? And the truth is that the, but the compassionate thing to do is also the, um, the the best financial investment as well when it comes to um, supporting a lot of people who have severe mental health issues and they're living on the street. They're never going to be able to take care of themselves. They're never going to be able to hold a job. They're never going to be able to house themselves. And if we can help them with permanent supportive housing, with, with wraparound services, with mental health services, that actually can free up a lot of our emergency services um, workload, you know, because there's so many calls for those individuals to 911. There's so many, um, you know, points (coughs) of contact where uh, police officers pick them up uh, and then they take them to, you know, a hospital and then 
the, the doctors look at them and they say, well, you know, there's nothing medically wrong sure. with this individual, and so they have to take them somewhere else, and it's just it's tying up a lot of our, our public safety resources that could be going towards other things, and we could save a lot there. So I think you would be maybe the, the most sought-after speaker in the world if you could end that problem, because it's a problem that so many people have tried to figure out, but it seems as though we as a culture and we as a city are taking it, uh, taking a different approach to it now than the old approach of just being penal in nature to how we treat homelessness. Now we're realizing people have some issues that maybe need to be dealt with and we should treat them like humans. What is sort of, uh, how do you even, how do you even go about sort of addressing that problem? Is your first step discussing with Metro health? Is it with discussing with the police sort of how, how have you tried to educate yourself to make sure that we have an approach that treats these people with the dignity that they deserve. I've tried to. T- I've sat down and talked with a lot of people, um, a lot of people with uh, the Department of Human Services at the city who works on this issue, um, people with the different nonprofits like Sam Ministries, Corazon Ministries, Haven for Hope, South Alamo Regional Alliance for Homelessness, um, Yanawana, Edwaladio. So a lot of the people who who have outreach workers who, who go and meet with people who are living on the streets and, and try and build relationships with them and get them into services, um, talking to the police chief, talking to the county sheriff, um, talking to the, the, the people who live in the neighborhoods where there are a lot of people who are, are homeless right now, and um, just learning everything I can. And what I've learned is that, one, it's going to take all of us working together sure. to solve this. Um, but the other thing is, you know, we have an opportunity in the 2022 bond. Now that we changed the language in the city charter previously, we couldn't build any kind of affordable housing or public housing. Mm. And we've changed that language now. So there's this is our opportunity. The mayor's wanting to go big on affordable housing. And I think we, there's an opportunity for it to also, as part of that affordable housing, going big on permanent supportive housing for people who can't house themselves. And that's great. But that's the 2022 bond, and it'll probably take us a year to buy the land. Yeah. And it'll probably take us a year to put out an RFP and get a design made, and then take another year to put out an RFP on decide who's going to actually build the housing, and then another year or two to build it. So we could be looking at 2026, 2027 sure. before that's done. So we need to be finding investments in the meantime to get people off the streets and into a safe living environment where they are um, – where they have the support that they need. And so some of that could can come from the city's budget, which I'm going to be pushing for, but some of that could be coming from the federal ARPA funds as well. So when you say supportive housing, because I'm little, I mean, I'm speaking outside of my, my, my pay, pay grade a little bit, but to some extent these, I mean, housing is a, is a big portion of it, but so is the support like mental health or drug and alcohol or just the, you know, reintroduction into workforce or whatever. So when you say supportive housing, is that what you mean? A housing situation that also provides social services? Correct. Okay. And would that be something as of now? I mean, obviously it's early on in the thought process, but like a city support service or somebody we would, and I guess really my question is, are there examples you've seen in other cities that you thought has been, have been successful that we would, we would be uh, well done to bring them here? I I think so. I mean, it's, you know, homelessness is not unique to San Antonio in sure. any way at all. Um, and, and we're doing a, a, shor- a shorter-term version of that right now. If you heard about, on my first day in city council, uh, we voted to approve a $2.9 million contract, and that was to lease a Days in hotel for one year and to contract with Sam Ministries to provide okay. those wraparound services, right? The one right so, there at Houston, right? I don't know the exact location. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. So... Um, 
so but that is designed for somebody for individuals who maybe they were li- they're living on the street right now and they they're on a, a list to get housing and maybe their their number is up in two months, three months from now. Sure. So we can put them in there to get them off the street so that they're less likely to experience any crises and you know, help them be in a more stable situation until they can get into that longer term housing, right? Are people so in the days in now? They are. Okay. There are, yeah, absolutely. There have been for you know, over a month now, I think. I mean, I th- is it you know, I think Haven for Hope provides services, but the people seeking services also have sort of part of the bargain there. They've got to do certain things and whether it's get treatment or seek a job, all those types of things. Currently, is the days in and Sam Ministries is it is it also similar? Like we are we are serving people, but we also are asking them to provide some sort of movement on their end as well. A, a lot of these organizations are have are at or have been moving towards a housing first okay. policy. So it's let's get somebody you know to have a roof over their heads and in a more stable situation before we try and get them off of drugs before we get them to commit to you know, anything else that we might need to be able, be working with them on. Which and, seems to make a lot of common sense. Right. And, and Haven for Hope, I understand, has changed quite okay. a bit. And and some of that may have been through COVID where people realize, you know, we got to do a better job of meeting people where they're yeah. at. We can't. I think that's a good way to put it, meeting yeah. people where they are. Yeah. Um, it, you know, the your predecessor was very, um, I'm not, he was in the news often related to the homelessness issue. Uh, are any of those programs that he was bringing on things you were sort of moving forward with, or have y'all sort of taken a different approach to it? Uh, we're t- definitely taking a different approach. I mean, we're, we we are not trying to offer services to people who are, are unhoused out of the District 1 field office right now. What okay. we're doing is we're trying to direct them to services. Gotcha. And is the, the, the city days in, is that limited to people in a certain district, or is that? It is not. Okay. Does is, Sam Ministries decide who ends up in there? They do. Okay. So the city has leased it, but basically contracted with Sam Ministries to sort of handle the day-to-day operation side. Right. Okay. Correct. Uh, what sort of, as y'all outlay this new plan of how to tackle this, is there going to be an approach to do it on a small scale first, or is there going to, is the idea that at some point we're just going to launch our entire new program? Um. Well, I mean, this, this days in is kind of the pilot project okay. in a way. And so we're hoping to grow that, and I'm hoping to be able to do more of the permanent supportive housing if we can get the funding for it. And Sam Ministries is a nonprofit? Yes. All right. Uh, not city-affiliated? No. All right. Uh, Gavin was on here. He's with Corazon Ministries, and they do a lot of outreach they as do. well. Uh, and they do great work. Are they part of this program? or N- They're not part of this that program. I actually had brunch with Gavin this morning. And yeah. um, he, they are... They're not part of that program, but, you know, as a result of COVID, all of these different groups are working a lot closer together now. Good. Um, you know, and, and also as a result of the winter storm, right? Yeah, sure. People just had to f- figure out what worked and work together. And so one thing that we have going for us in San Antonio is how well all of these different organizations work together. And they are very familiar with each other. They know which niche each of the other organizations fits yeah. best. Some people are best for, you know, housing families. Some people might be best suited for helping people with mental health issues. Some people might be best for people who have drug addiction issues. Maybe some people might be best for um, 
you know, just single women sure. or or people who have a pet, you know, and you want to yeah. pre- keep the pet with. They want to keep. They don't, they're not willing to part ways with the pet. Yeah. And not everybody can house a person and the pet, right? And so they know who's who's the best fit for which situation, and so they're very. Um, they're 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 happy to redirect somebody to another organization as opposed to theirs. And I'm I assume from your standpoint, talking to people like Gavin is just the best way to sort of get caught up on the problem, right? It I is, mean, those people is. have been doing it for a long time. They have, yeah, they yep. have, and they understand what it's like to you know all the work you have to do on the street at the street level, building trust. Um, and, and what I've come to learn is how important those those day hubs are, right? So um, previous prior to getting elected at the district one field office, there was a two day a week hub where people could come and get services. Right. And that's where you can build relationships with individuals because a lot of them are resistant to accepting services. Mm. And so we went from, we, we um, stopped offering that two day a week hub at the district one field office. And uh, Gavin opened up a five day a week Mm. hub downtown and so there, when they're bringing people in five days a week, uh, you know, they're able to do a better job of building relationships with people and being able to try to route them into services. And, you know, one of my questions for Gavin, Gavin at brunch was, hey, what would it take to go to seven days a week? Yeah. And what, what type of services at the Day Hub? Um, well, they, um, you can get uh, a shower. You can get clean clothes or you can wash your clothes. You can... Um, uh, they, they can help you with uh, routing you to other services. Huh. Well, you can get a meal. You, they can help route you to services, whether if you can't get a job because you don't have an ID. They can help you get um, your uh, state ID or your driver's license or your Social Security card or your birth certificate. Um, you know, they can connect you with, you know, maybe getting on a housing list, maybe um, getting some drug addiction counseling. But not just a meal. Like yeah, it you used get to be a lot more than a meal. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about you were in the news recently about sort of look, you've had to have lived under a rock for the last two years to not be fully aware of sort of the, the black lives matter, the social justice movement, as it relates to policing, the defund the police and all of those issues. Right. We had our own protests here, uh, which luckily didn't turn uh, like some of the other cities did, but we also are grappling as a large city on how to handle the uh, sort of the debate debate among policing. We had, I think, a mentally ill man who was shot by police not that long ago. Um, and you were in the police, uh, the, the paper, and I really a- appreciated sort of your take on things. There was some discussion of if a mental health call comes in, don't send police at all. There's, you know, some people saying that only mental health, you know, providers should be sent out. And you sort of took the position of we should send mental health providers uh, professionals, along with police who understand those issues. Um, that is a policing issue. So I guess my question is, is that discussion on how to handle those issues currently part of the police union negotiations, or is it really just the city trying to figure out what position they want to take on those issues? Uh, I think that's just a, right now, I think it's just a conversation we're having at city council. Okay. Um, and the idea is that, um, what's been proposed by city staff and what was recommended by a a study by the Meadows Foundation is doing a pilot project on a co-responder situation where 
um, a police officer would go with with a mental health professional to a case where we believe that somebody's having a mental health crisis, right? And um, there's some of us who, uh, well, some people are saying, well, why don't we send just a mental health professional for a mental health crisis, not the police officer, not a co-responder model. Right. That's what they have and have had for maybe 40 years. It's a The CAHOOTS model is no police officer. You just send the mental health professional. They've had that in Eugene, Oregon for like over 40 years. They've had it for a while, I think, in Denver now. Mm. Um, what we're looking at right now, it, what's been proposed is the Portland model, which is the co-responder you send both together, right? And so the police officer maybe makes sure that the situation is safe and then the mental health professional will will try to address the individual who's in crisis. Um, I believe that we should explore a, um, like being able to run both and make sure that the response uh, fits the situation at hand, right? So, so, you know, some people don't think, are, are concerned about sending a mental health professional without a police officer there, you know, for safety reasons. And... They don't believe that the net 911 dispatch um, person, the person taking the calls, would be able to distinguish when the situation, what what situations call for the co-responder and which situations do not. I look at it and I think, okay, sometimes you call 911 and then they decide, do I send one police officer? Do I sure. send every police officer available? Do I send the SWAT team? Right. And in the same way, I think maybe we can have a, a set of criteria where they send just the mental health professional which would also save money yeah, as well, right? Or do we send both together? I mean, the operators and could be trained. I think so. Yeah. I think so. And that's what I'd like. That's what I'm going to advocate for. I don't know where we're going to end up. I mean, this is, <clears throat> this is a very recent conversation. Where does the mental health professional come from? That's not a police department employee or is the idea they will hire some? Um, I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. I'm, I, I don't even know where that would exist within other cities. I don't know because you never hear of, you know, Metro Health having a response team with vehicles and mm -hmm. stuff like that. You know, what was interesting is um, I, I met with Eric. I don't know his last name. He runs STRAC, okay. which is our mm -hmm. regional emergency response coordinator. And um, he described a situation where, you know, you're driving down the highway. There's a multi-car multi pileup. Are people bleeding? People need, you know, need help. What do you do? You call 911. What happens? You know, they send an ambulance. Mm -hmm. they t where do they take them? They take them to the hospital. Okay, there's a mental health crisis. What do you do? Nobody knows. Yeah. And so we have to train people on what to do in that situation. And so that that's a gap that we have in our community right now. And it's, I don't think it's unique here, but it's something that, that we need to work on. I mean, do we know is... You know, a lot of those people get brought to UHS because it's a county hospital. Do we know, is UHS sort of trained up on those? Or does UHS then just say, oh, go to a mental health, go, you know, go to this mental health provider because we're not the triage for that. Right. They'll, they'll often send you off to somewhere else. So it's just sort of a whole bunch of people throwing their hands up in the air of this isn't my issue or I don't know what to do, it sounds like. That's, that's how I understood it, but, you know, the way Eric described it. Yeah. I mean, I think that's. That's why you end up with some people getting shot sometimes who are having a mental health issue. Uh, I think is just because so many, so few people understand how to resolve those issues or even just approach those issues. Sure. It seems like, um, and, and they may handle it well a lot of the time, but sometimes things go wrong. Sure. Right? And if that's not, if if that officer with a gun is not the right tool for the job, let's let's find the right tool for the job or develop the right tool for the job.
And there still is the idea that plenty of people don't believe it's real. I mean, uh, there's still that stigma that some people have. There's that, but also we can free up law enforcement resources to go sure. address a lot of the other issues that, that are ailing our community. Um, kind of as an aside, you have to be sort of caught up on all kinds of issues in your job, right? Yeah. Um, San Antonio has also had a very big explosion in violent crime, specifically um, sort of in the, maybe not in your district, but kind of in the inner core of San Antonio is my understanding. I'm no expert on this, but statistically I've read that we're having a problem. And, and it was really more of a year ago you were hearing more about it than you're hearing right now. How are we looking right now in terms of our violent crime issues? I don't know, and it's really interesting. I actually had a conversation with Chief McManus about this before I ran for office years ago. And, uh, you know, San Antonio Report used to be the Rivard Report, and, and they were, you know, I guess they partnered with um, Texas Tribune. And so mm -hmm. in Austin, they've got the statewide Texas Tribune Festival, and here we started doing a, a local uh, policy festival sure. uh, at the city level. I don't, I don't remember what they call it. And uh, there was one on law enforcement issues. And I, I stayed around afterward to ask Chief McManus about, I guess, you know, it was after, um, it, maybe it was at right after the 2019 mayoral race. Um, was it, be, you know, between Brockhouse and Ron Nuremberg? This is what Brockhouse ran on a, right. a large part. Well, and... They both cited very different statistics yeah. on what our crime rates were. And so I was asking the chief about that. And the chief said it's really hard to compare crime rates from city to city because a lot of cities report them differently mm. and collect that information differently. And some people underreport on purpose because they want their city to sure. look better. I mean, I think... I I think McManus himself got on the news one time, if I'm recalling this, this is probably a year or two ago, and said, we are having issues. It is only limited to, I, I want to say there was a lot of gang violence on the east side at that moment. And he was talking about how they're trying to figure out how to get their hands around it. Um, and, and, you know, when Susan Reed was DA, she created this kind of out of whole cloth gang injunction zones, I think she called them. And if you had been arrested for gang-affiliated crime, it was illegal to go in like a four block radius, which there was all kinds of lawyers saying, is this even legal? Like, how can you just do that? But she kind of started, you know, that kind of worked is what I understood it to be. And then it sort of seemed to be getting out of control again. Um, I, I guess in your position, you're not hearing that we're having any sort of violence issues that are, that are sort of out of control right now. They haven't been brought to my attention. Okay. Um, in office now. The pandemic uh, has sort of, you know, run our lives for the last two years. The state, uh, the county, everybody's getting a bunch of federal money is my understanding, right? Yes. Is the city getting that money? <laughs> it's just so hard to follow yeah. dollars. Like, it sounds like the county is getting a lot of this and maybe because it's a county hospital. But how is that money being out and not down to the final, but does the state decide who gets what? Does the feds decide? We're, we're getting, getting money, money from the state. We're getting money from the federal government. The city's getting money. The county's getting money. And my understanding is, you know, you've got people who are behind on their bills by a significant amount. You know, some of them, you know, well up upwards of $1,000 for CPS energy bills. I'm yeah. not sure where they are behind on SAWS bills. You know, I think maybe there's 
hundred or 120,000 people who are behind on their bills and with CPS energy. And, um, you know, my understanding is, is there's going to be, um, federal dollars there that you can get through the city or through the County, um, to to get help, get caught up on bills. Um, I don't think that's available yet at this time, but I think it may be soon. Um, so there, there are going to be, there's going to be funding and there are going to be programs where you could possibly go to the city or go, go to the county to get some, some support but some for of that. It is or maybe for assistance with your rent. Uh, hopefully very soon we're going to have some more money. We, re- we, we were having assistance for rent um, payments, but not, we ran out of funding for mortgage payments for homeowners. And I think we're going to be voting next week on accepting maybe another half million dollars of funding for um, assistance for mortgage payments. But isn't some of the money stimulus money as well, not just uh, rental assistance and things like that? I don't know. We're going to we're gonna do a deep dive on that. Um, you know, this Thursday we vote on the city's $3.1 billion proposed budget. Um, and as soon as that's over, then we're going to start looking at all of this ARPA funding. Oh, so the budget, this is a big deal right now. It is. Uh, any highlights of the budget we should know about? Um, highlights of the budget. non-standard highlights. Non-standard yeah. highlights. I mean, I I can really speak more to you know some of the things I'm going to be proposing, well, which is you know I want studies, different studies to to make sure that the way we're managing our government is um, to best best to best support our community and the way we're investing tax dollars is um, responsibly done. And so I'm interested in things like we may be spending, we, we may be proposing up to $250 million in affordable housing projects on the next bond. I'd like to see a study on, before we spend any more money on affordable housing from that 2022 bond. I'd like to see a study done that shows how effective have our recent investments in affordable housing mm. been at the local level? Are we, are we getting the intended effect from those investments? Um, and so I'd like to see that to make sure that if we're going to spend $250 million of the taxpayer's money, that that's in invested effectively that, and we get the intended impact. Since you got, I mean, you just got elected. So was the budget process kind of already moving all the way towards almost done by the time oh, you took office? I think it's always that way. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's especially challenging as a new council yeah. member because you come in and you know, you basically have about two and a half months before you have to vote on that, but you don't have any staff necessarily. Uh, you know, I mean, like if you're Phyllis Viagran and you inherit your sister's staff, yeah. that's a different story, right? Yeah. But if you're starting from scratch, you got to go out there and interview people and hire them. And so we're just finally hiring our last person right now, you know, as we're getting ready to yeah. go into this this vote. And so much, so much of our budget's public sa- I mean, it's the vast majority's public safety, right? Well, that's a huge portion of the general fund. Yeah. For sure. But so, that, yeah, a lot of it's already locked in, you know, and it might be stump, something related to the airport. Um, there might be, um, you know, other stuff. But, I mean, we, we've got we've got property taxes. Uh, we've got sales tax. We've got um, revenues from CPS Energy that are coming in. And um, but a, lo- a lot of it's, you know, I, I've always said, even before I got here, that you know, all the pieces of the pie have already been distributed and then we, the council gets to come in and fight over the crumbs. Yeah. Uh, have y'all had any discussions about this new bill that was passed that only affects like seven cities in Texas? And if you reduce your police budget, you like lose all this state money. 
Uh, I haven't been a part of any of those discussions. Okay. Well, so we're not reducing our police budget, it sounds like. I, I don't think so. Yeah. I think um, the first budget proposal was proposing another 12 safe officers. And, you know, my response was, you know what, I, I haven't heard. I know a lot of people love their safe officers. I haven't heard anybody ask for more safe officers. Mm-hmm. Um, what I have. Those are like your neighborhood, uh, like the non-emergency neighborhood people correct, you call, right? Correct. And, um, you know, and a lot of people love their safe officers. And then there's some people who are like, who's my safe officer? Yeah, I haven't I seen that yeah. person in forever. Like, what, what are they doing? I wouldn't know who mine was. <laughs> I would right. get on next door and ask if anyone knew. Yeah. And so, but uh, what I have heard um, is from all the residents who live around the North St. Mary Strip, from all the business owners on the North St. Mary Strip, I'm hearing a lot of they would like to see more foot patrol out there yeah. in the evenings. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of activity on North St. Mary Strip. And, People would like to just see more of just a police officer presence on foot, on bicycle. It's um, probably four years ago, but a buddy of mine got robbed at gunpoint on like a Friday night. He was walking to his car down one of the side streets, and somebody came up and asked for his wallet. They did catch them, and they had robbed like six people that night, uh, and they were just people that had come up to rob, you know, drunks walking back to their, you know, they even Ubers or whatever. Were they from? Or in, I don't know. know. Yeah, but my buddy got his wallet back. But it's a pretty wild story because yeah. I think, you know, I've heard that St. Mary's had a run where it was a little rough, but kind of before I even lived here. But, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a bunch of kids now. It's, it's a, it's a yeah. real young kid, young crowd down there now. Yeah, it was, I think, in the late 90s, maybe, um, there was a restaurant there, Carlos O'Brien's. My dad built the restaurant. My uncle <laughs> managed it, and somebody was murdered on the front steps. Uh, so they, somebody tried to uh, steal a woman's purse. And her boyfriend or her husband tried to stop the individual, and somebody pulled out a gun and shot the Jeez. guy. And it made all the news, and that's when the, the business died on the North St. Mary Strip. Taco Land guy. I mean, that's a little bit off, but he apparently, they broke in, said, give me your register. And he said, no. And they're like, we're going to kill you. He's like, you're going to have to kill me. And they shot him dead. Whoa. And I don't know if you've ever read the story. You need to read yeah. the stories about the guy who owned Taco Land. They said he would go around. They said he was just a party, but... He'd go around, and they'd be like, oh, I'm done with my drink. Well, there's drink in there, and he would drink it. They said he was just hilarious. And there's, like, a thing commemorating commemorating him there now. What is it, Velvet Taco or whatever they – what's it called? I'm not sure. You know, the old taco land. I don't know. Across from the Pearl. Oh, okay. Yeah, they some Dallas chain taco joint took it over. Um, oh, is it, like, TNC now? No. No. That was uh, taco, TNT, Tacos and Tequila. That was on Broadway. Oh, okay. So if you just went the other way towards the strip. Okay. Literally across the street from La Gloria. Okay. Yeah. There's, you just need to go see the oak tree. It's okay. The, one of the coolest oak trees you'll ever see. But it used to be Taco Land, and then it reopened as Taco Land, and now it's a taco chain. Okay. Um, what are some of your sort of short-term and long-term goals? Let's start short-term first. I mean, I expect you'll be in office for – uh, four two-year terms, which seems really smart for our city. But uh, eight years, if, 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 if let's assume you'll be there eight years, what are some of your short-term goals and what are your sort, sort of long-term goals? Um, short-term goals are, um, you know, doing a lot more on, when it comes to sustainability, doing a lot more when it comes to making our city more resilient. We can't count on the state to be able to keep our power on during extreme weather events. They've, they've proven that to us, right? And they um, have refused to initiate any meaningful reform since that last storm. Yeah. And so how can we invest in energy efficiency at the local level 
so that we reduce our reliance on energy per capita. Would CPS ever have the ability to step outside of of ERCOT, though? No. Okay, so we're always a little beholden. The state has the opportunity, if they wanted to, to become a part of the national grid, but mm-hmm. yeah, CPS Energy doesn't have that option. Yeah. Right. Um, okay, so sustainability, so the, rely, uh, yeah. resiliency. Resiliency. Um, you know, investing in permanent supportive housing um, is something that I want to do right away. Um, you know, something I'm really excited about is also when it comes to um, reducing our energy consumption is uh, SAWS has this water loop, an underground water loop mm. that people can tie into and you can use that loop to cool or heat your building. So they can mm. heat the water they, in the, in the uh, winter, they can cool the water yeah. during the summer. And it, it's very efficient because on a 100 degree day, it might be 80 degrees out at night. So instead of trying to to cool the building when it's 100 degrees outside, you're now instead you're waiting till nighttime. You're cooling the water when it's only 80 degrees outside, mm. storing that cold water underground, and then using it during the, the hottest part of the day to cool that building. Right? We have it's we had the it's the first water loop in the city. I mean, Where in is the country. it? It's downtown. Okay, but it's been underutilized, and I'm and, and they're updating it. And I think there's a lot of opportunities for us to do that, but they. They have the ability not just to do it downtown. If there's other growth centers, if there's other large building developments, they can do standalone units as mm. well. And it's it can save the building owner money, and it can reduce our energy consumption. So I'm excited. Yeah, you can do that for your home. I mean, this that, that's been around for 50 years. You could have your home where they would bury water deep into the ground, and really it, it just shortens yeah. the amount of work that your electricity has to do. Right. So less so that, to cool, less to heat. Yeah, you, so you're thinking of a, like a ground source heat pump. Yeah, and but so, be water deep in the ground. Right. Yeah. So this is similar, but you don't have to go deep, right? Mm. Um, because because you're actually going to be cooling or heating that water versus using the Earth's core temperature sure. kind of a deal. Um, I didn't know they had that. Yeah. So I'm excited about, you know, some developments over there and being able to promote that. Uh, Long term, you know, I'd like to see us diversifying our economy. I'd like to make sure that we're doing big things with affordable housing and, and uh, generational poverty and just making sure that as we pivot coming out of the pandemic and uh, are rebounding, that we're making sure that we're not leaving people behind as we have in the past. Uh, what about yourself as it relates to the to the district? Anything specifically you want to do with the district? Do you want to get to know some neighborhoods better, ride your bike with me through the district, which I've asked you three I times do. now. You know, there's some goals you yeah. should personally have as well. You know, and, and uh, that's <laughs> yeah, maybe my long-term goal, but hopefully a short-term goal is to make us a really bike. F- I want to make us a really bike-friendly city. Yeah. You know, um, like bike-friendly to the point where it puts us on the map nationally, maybe internationally. And we have parts that are great. I mean, we I'm do. telling you, like, I leave and my friends are like, is it safe? And I'm like, not for the first two miles. And then mm-hmm. I'm good. You know, I yeah. hit almost park and I've got nice bike lanes. And then in Monta Vista, nice bike yeah. lanes, you know, around the arsenal, those are the best bike lanes. It's only like two blocks, but it's like each way and a pedestrian path. Yeah. Yeah. We have a few projects coming that have that, but you know, my big challenge right now with city staff is that they, you know, they've tripled the, uh, the budget for bikes, yeah. for bike lanes uh, but it's going into developing the master plan, mm. and that's and they're going to spend two years working on it. And I'm like, what can we deliver today? Yeah, I want to see more protected bike lanes now, and so I'd like to see more investment in that. 
you know, it's there should there should be somewhere that like people who ride could just like submit because there's this weird spot that they're it's it's bike lane or sidewalk. It's easy, and then there's a sidewalk that goes to the road, and then it ends. The other side, yeah. no sidewalk. There's yeah. nothing else. It just ends. I, you know, they, they want to spend. I think they want to spend two point seven million dollars on this bike master plan, and I'm saying, look. Go build $2.7 million of protected bike lanes. Maybe you only get it 80% correct. Maybe 20% mm-hmm. of the bike lanes are, are not in the ideal location. But, you know, do some back-of-the-envelope cal- calculations, and I'd be happier with that. I think the cycling community would be happier with that. And we have a lot of roads that can handle them. I mean, I, I live off Jackson Keller, and it's just – it's a giant road, and people don't know if it's two lanes each way or if it's one, but there's plenty of room for a bike lane, and, mm-hmm. you know, it's just kind of do all over the board. fresh striping here? There's no striping on yeah. my section. Actually, drive, drive Jackson Keller. It, there's lots of chunks that you don't know if you're in a one lane or a two lane, and then it opens back up. Yeah, right in front of all our schools. Yeah, yeah. Um, Mario, thank you for coming on here. As 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 you grow as a council person, I'm going to drag you back to talk to me again. It was very hard to get you on the first time, but you know you're a man in demand. Um, I appreciate you you doing this. Um, any next big things for the county? So we got the budget this week, and then what are sort of the next big milestones for the county? Is there a year-end thing, or is this kind of the budget for the, the year-end? city end? or the county? City, the I'm sorry. Yeah. the city. Um, so, okay, um, this Thursday, September 16th, we vote on the city's budget and the tax rate, the property tax rate, mm. right? Finalize all of that. Then we go into uh, looking at uh, federal relief funds, how are we going to distribute those? As soon as we're done with that, we're going to be going into um, looking at the 2022 um, uh, bond. And, uh, you know, we're going to be seating our different com- uh, committee members for those different committees. And it's a big bond. Uh, right now, it's proposed at $1.2 billion. The last one was $850 million. Yeah, that's a lot of money. Yeah. Um, if people want to learn more about you, what's your, what's your website? Is it campaign they go to or go to your city council website? Yeah, I think city council, you know, you can, um, maybe just Google just search me, you. Yeah. yeah. And then if you're San in the Antonio district, city council district one. Yeah. And then you can reach out, uh, through your district website. You'll have probably multiple people whose job is to talk to constituents. We've got a bunch of them. Yeah. yeah. We're hiring the last one this week. So we'll be fully well, staffed up. Well, we wish you the best, and you're you're my law firm's uh, city council person and my home city council person, so I look forward to getting to know you more. Great. Glad to be here, and I'll make it easier to get on next time. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Alamo Hour. You are all what make this city so great. We hope you join us next week. In the meantime, subscribe to our podcast. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash alamohour or our website, alamohour.com. Until next time, Viva San Antonio!